Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Good evening, everyone. I'm John Coughlin, a member of the faculty, and it's an honor and a privilege for me to this evening serve as the moderator of this discussion on Islam and Christianity, and specifically under the title Serving the God of Justice and Mercy, Muslim and Christian Perspectives. First, I'm going to introduce each of our two speakers. Then Professor Bowering will speak, followed by Professor Caveney. After we've heard their remarks, we'll open the floor up to questions. Gerhard Bowering is Professor of Islamic Studies at Yale University since 1984. He received his PhD in Islamic Studies at McGill University in 1975. And prior to his tenure at Yale, he was Associate Professor at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia from 1975 to 1984. He has published so many books that it would not even begin, be possible for me to begin to list them. Let me simply say that he serves as editor-in-chief of the Encyclopedia of Islamic Political Thought. In addition to his books, he's published many scholarly articles, including encyclopedia articles, such as those in the Encyclopedia Iranica. He is a world-recognized expert on Sufism. Perhaps his greatest tribute is that as a professor at Yale, he has trained many doctoral students, served as a mentor of many students, and they now populate university faculties throughout the world in Islamic studies. That brings me to our next speaker, Professor Kathleen Caveney, who first met Gerhard when she was a graduate student at Yale. Kathleen Caveney is the Darold and Juliet Libby Professor at Boston College. She has joint appointments in the Department of Theology and the Law School. She has published over 100 articles and essays on a wide variety of subjects. Um, she has also published many books. The most recently of her published books is titled Prophecy, Without Contempt, Religious Rhetoric in the Public Square by Harvard University Press in 2016. She has another book, Ethics at the Edges of Law, and that is forthcoming from Oxford University Press. Kathy was a colleague, or I was a colleague of her before I came here at the University of Notre Dame, so this is a very nice uh, reunion uh, for us. It's a, a great honor, as I said, to welcome Professors Bowering and Kaveney to New York University Abu Dhabi. Uh, we are grateful for and honored by their presence. And without further ado, I present Professor Bowering. The idea was to speak about God and the idea of God 
in the Christian tradition, represented especially by Professor Kaveni, and in the Islamic tradition, and uh, to focus very much on God under the aspects of justice and mercy. For Islam, we go back to the Quran when we speak about God and we know that God appears under many names in the, in the Quran, but three names perhaps stand out. One becomes the overpowering name of Allah. In the earliest surahs, we find the word Arab. And in the first verse of the Quran, appears the name of Ar-Rahman. Those three words are very typical for the Quran. And perhaps the word Arab presents the earliest form that Muhammad addresses God in the Quran, especially in the, that surah that is taken as his first revelation. Here the word Rabb appears immediately. Again, Rabbu. Rabbuka al-akram aladhi allama bil-qalam. Allama al-insana ma'alam ya'alam. And the first verse of the Quran, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, also figures the word of Allah and Rahman. Those are words that are very dear to all Muslims when they speak about God. But in the center, with time, came the word that of Allah that becomes the overpowering word for God and how he is identified throughout history with this religion. And Allah is used in a way that identifies him as the one and only God. It is not fully a proper name, but simply the name for God. And as such, it comes through in the affirmation of Allahu Akbar, where Akbar really is a bit broken off in language because the next element of the phrase is missing or, or silently understood, namely God is greater than the demons of the Jahiliya, of the original environment where the Quran was proclaimed by Muhammad. And so we have here the name Ar-Rahman added, possibly by influences from the way in which this name was used in pre-Islamic Arabia and then assimilated into the language about God in the Quran. This God is seen in the Quran basically under two major concepts, namely as the one who stands at the beginning and end of the universe and of human history and of the human creation. God is 
the creator, but he also is the judge. Creator at the beginning of the universe, creator at the beginning of human life, and ultimate judge where each individual stands alone before God to give account for his or her life on the day of judgment. So God stands at, at, uh, at both ends of history and as, as well as the, the one that represents eternity beyond time. The Muslim sees very much in God, however, the aspect that he is one. And that becomes through very strongly in the Quran, in the emphasis that this oneness is central to Islam about the idea of God. And this word will then be part of what is known as Tawheed, the oneness of God that can often be understood within Islam in three different ways, namely as the profession of God's oneness that is uttered in the Shahada and is in, in encapsulated in the La ilaha illallah of the Muslim profession of faith. It can also be understood by the Sufis as representing union between the human and God under the understanding that it is not enough to simply say by word and profess by word that God is one but one has to experience oneness with God, which is critically accepted by the ulama of, of fiqh, but represents a deep inner knowledge that re revolves around the concept of union and mystical union with God. Furthermore, with time, that concept of Tawheed then was developed to say that it is not enough to simply know that you are one with God in your experience, but you have to understand that underlying the experience is oneness with God, and then it comes to the concept of Wahdatul Wujud, of being one with God in existence, which then seems to go against the profession of faith though can possibly be interpreted as interpreting it from the very bottom of, of what it means. Now, God, as he appears that as, as, as judge at the end times and as creator at the beginning, is in the Quran very often mentioned as the possessor of divine names. He is the possessor of the divine names, traditionally enumerated as 99. I cannot go through all those names, but 
two categories stand out, those of justice and of mercy, or also often explained as those of divine majesty and divine beauty, Jalal and Jamal, under which God is specially seen. Though at the very center of it is that profession, La ilaha illa huwa al-hayul qayyum, from the throne verse of the Quran, where these attributes are introduced by those attributes that later the Ash'ariya will hold up in distinguishing between the essential attributes of God, which are seven, namely that of life, of power, of will, of knowledge, of seeing, hearing, and speech, next to other divine attributes that exist by making the distinction that those seven essential attributes come with the concept of God, whereas his action as a creator or the one who determines the end of life has a relationship within itself to some action and therefore is not in the same way essential as these active attributes are being uh, proposed in the theology. But in the theological discourse, two particular aspects of God also that go along with the aspects of uh, Jamal and Jalal are those of his omnipotence and of his omnipresence. And that goes back to Quranic phrases that are very crucial and are frequently quoted. Nothing is, unto, is like unto him, for omnipotence who are And for the omni-science, the omniscience, Wherever you turn, there is the face of God. That means that God is always in action, defines the particular vision of God that he is involved in each and every moment of creation, not only at the very beginning, but as it continues. And the Quran does not see God relaxing on the seventh day, but being always in action at each and every moment, day in and day out. Creation would, so to speak, stop. Would he not continue in this way, creating a concept of creation that is underneath, discontinuing, though it is totally continuously 
ex uh, experienced by us. And for his omnipresence, wherever you turn, there is the faith of God, the face of God, basically says God has no back. He only is a face, day in and day out, day and night. You always are in his presence. He never turns away. A deep foundation for the understanding of his forgiveness that no human can ever be overlooked by God though the human being can turn away from him, he will not. This has been further elaborated then in the Quran by images of God that are also very dear to Muslim, but some see in those images then some aspects that make it more difficult to interpret them and require interpretation. Nevertheless, they are strong like the idea of Allahu Nuru Samawaiti Wal Ard. God is the light of the heaven and the earth. A very strong word, again emphasizing the power of God and perhaps also reflecting his presence day and night. And similarly, the throne word where God sits over his creation in the th throne verse and rules creation. And in that rule is described as, in almost human terms, having hands sitting on a throne, overlooking the waters of creation, and having eyes but it's not mentioned in the Quran as having a mouth, although the Quran is seen as his speech. These two aspects of the presence of God everywhere and his, his omnipotence have marked Islam and are in many ways not dissimilar to the way Christianity sees God active at each and every moment. These are aspects that Islamic theology further developed in the struggle between the relationship of the action of the human being and God, in the struggle between human responsibility and divine predetermination that became the struggle of the Madrasila and the Ash'ariya and that continued to become the, in part the burden and in part also the challenge of uh, Islamic theology into our times. And the, this strong development of an Islamic orientation of today's world that uh, feels that the original origin uh, interpretation of Islam may have been diverted through the uh, development of the centuries of different influences that were integrated into Islam. 
though the realization there is as well that simply going back to a wishful thinking of what Islam might have been in the beginning may not be the answer to today's world and that Islam has grown over the centuries integrating many other aspects in its development that made it the reality that it has become. That uh, today is challenged as an attitude that uh, we all experience. Overall, this understanding of God is rooted in the Quran itself as word of God, uttered by God word for word, which Muhammad is seen as proclaiming as the Khatam al-Anbiya, as the last of the prophets, where the revelation has come to an end with Muhammad. When Muhammad dies, the end of the Quranic revelation has occurred. That is slightly different from the way Christianity views the word of God because it identifies the person of Jesus with the word of God in its theology and really rather begins with the death of Jesus as the word of God in an ongoing revelation. Whereas Muhammad reflects a revelation that has ended, Christianity is open to a revelation that goes into the future. And that leads in Christianity to the concept of a Trinitarian God that uh, Islam is in the Quran rejecting as tritheism. And here differences appear that may be more rooted in misunderstanding than in reality, but that have affected the history of the two religions encountering one another. What has always been essential for me in reading the Quran or in studying Islam are the elements where both religions meet and how they really are servants of the very same God and put that into practice. For Muslims, it is very much done through the attitude of obedience. A Muslim is obedient to God, to his duties before God, and therefore is, sees himself very much as faith being spelled out not only in words but in deeds. And Christianity is not dissimilar to that, though it speaks more of the neighborly love as the ideal and sees that as being a way in which one serves God, where obedience is stretched out into the love of the neighbor. Another idea that 
is connected with my experience of reading the Quran. It goes back to the verse in Surah Al-Araf. Alastu bi rabbikum qalu bala shahidna. Where the Quran refers to what is often called a yawmul alast or yawmul mitak. Where even before creation, God at the very in incipient stages of creation, before the physical creation that occurred, found the whole human race united in front of him, either as specks, as specks or as particles of light, and challenges them, am I not your Lord? And they say, yes, we do. We testify. And that is the first moment that the human race still only existent as if in the loins of their prophets as particles to their professional faith, except that one Lord whom they are going to serve into the future when they become physically present on, in this world. So that Islam develops a sense of time that stretches into pre-eternity is realized here and now, and then moves time into eternity to the day of resurrection. So that the life in this world is suspended between two moments, both seen as particular days, so if you wish in symbolic language, how God, how humanity entered into the perception of God and what came out of God's own perception of his creation was challenged in this world to live up to its faith in obedience so as to return to the origin of which it came, which was the divine nature itself. This is a, a concept of time that Islam perhaps develops more into the world of Sufism, but that has its deep roots in the Quran itself. And that connects the world of the divine nature with the world of human nature. An issue Islam has struggled with throughout its intellectual history. So as we come to a, the conclusion of my short reflection on the idea of God in the Quran as perceived by someone who comes from outside the tradition but reads in the, into the tradition, we find grounds of commonality of commonness of faith, of commonness of action, at the same time as we face challenges of the future. Challenges how we are going to live with that knowledge that so much of the theological depth of the Quran and the depth of faith 
that we encounter among its believers is actually also repeated before and after the emergence of Islam, of Islam by the Christian who realizes the presence of God in this life, acknowledges him as creator and final judge, and together with the proclamation of the Quran, breaks through with that belief in the eternity of God and in the immortality of the human race beyond death when received in the presence of God, both of them at the same time and with the same love, with the same justice and the same mercy. Thank you very much. Good evening. It's a, a delight and a pleasure and an honor for me to uh, be able to speak to you tonight with such distinguished scholars and friends as, as Professor Bervering and Professor Coughlin. It's my first experience here in, the, in this area of the region and the desert um, has changed the way I, I see the world, and, and I can see how living in this context, you could even learn to see God in a different way, um, and even mercy in a different way. Um, Professor Bervering gave a, 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 a very um, inspiring theological and textual account of God in Islam and in looking at the way it relates uh, to the understanding of God in Christianity. I am not going to be speaking at that very high level. I am just a lawyer and an ethicist. So what I am going to do is to try to take some of the concepts of justice and mercy and look at some of the relations and even the tensions within them. I am not experienced as, as, as Professor Bervering and Professor Coughlin are in, in both Islam and Christianity. I, I speak out of the Christian tradition, and I hope that in our conversation, you um, can help me think about points of consonance, help me learn about points of consonance with the Muslim tradition. So I'm going to begin uh, with just some concepts. What is mercy? Well, if you think about the word as it's developed in the Christian tradition, it seems to have something to do with fellow feeling. Misericordia, the Latin word, means a miserable, a suffering heart, a miserable heart at the, um, at the suffering of other people. The word compassion, also with a Latin root, compatior, to suffer with someone. And the attitude of mercy, as we understand it even on the human level, seems to think about alleviating the burden of someone else without regard almost to whether that burden is justly carried or unjustly carried. You see the suffering and you want to help. What is justice? 
Well, it's not primarily about feeling, at least it's as it's developed in the Western uh, philosophical tradition. It's about a certain kind of order. It's a judgment based on a certain kind of proportion. You see the scales of justice. Aristotle, the great philosopher whom the Muslim world introduced to the Christian world, was carried over by one of our great philosophers and theologians, St. Thomas Aquinas, but he did not get to Aristotle directly. He got to him through Muslim sources. Justice, according to Aristotle, is a judgment based on criteria of proportion. Aristotle talked about proportionate justice, evening the scales, we use those words today, even when we talk about people paying for the crime they committed, the notion of payment, paying one's due. Question, of course, is always, what is due? In the Christian tradition, I think the greatest, um, I'm trying to open my iPad here again, the greatest, uh, the greatest speech about what mercy is comes not from a theologian or a monk, but from one of our greatest poets, William Shakespeare, in the play The Merchant of Venice. One of the characters named Portia talks about what mercy is. And she says, pleading for relief for mercy from a judge, the quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesses him that giveth and him that taketh. It is mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throne monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power an attribute to awe and majesty, wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings. But mercy is above this sceptered sway. It is enthroned in the heart of kings. It is an attribute to God himself, and earthly power doth become like God's when mercy seasons justice. William Shakespeare, The Merchant of Venice. And I see echoes in this great poet of the West with some of what Professor Bowering was talking about in terms of the attributes of God in Islam, justice and mercy, majesty and beauty. But the question is, how do these relate? Shakespeare just said justice is above mercy. Justice seasons mercy. Yet at the same time, both, Jew, uh, both Muslims and Christians believe that justice in God cannot be inconsistent with mercy, nor God's justice inconsistent with God's mercy. So how exactly do the two interrelate? As I just said, I am an ethicist, not a historian, so my remarks on this topic will be more conceptual. I want to map a bit some of the landscape of the relationship between justice and mercy to orient our discussion. In particular, I want to do two things. First, 
describe three of the settings in which justice and mercy might relate on a human level and maybe point to how, at least in Christianity, they might relate in the divine uh, economy. And then say, secondly, say something about how the paradox of justice and mercy might look. And, and perhaps, just perhaps, drawing on some of Professor Bowering's final remarks, point to a way in which we might think about their resolution. So let's begin with thinking about how justice and mercy relate. Well, within the philosophical tradition, people don't generally just talk about justice from one aspect. Um, they talk about different types or different aspects of justice. And I think it's very helpful to break justice down into these categories and think about where and how mercy interrelates with respect to each of these topics. The first, of course, and probably the most prominent, is retributive justice or punishment. The second is distributive justice or sometimes shading into commutative justice, who gets what good? And the third type of justice is really social justice, how the community members orient and arrange their relationships to one another. So how might we think about mercy as it has developed with respect to justice in each of these subcategories of justice? Well, the first, of course, is retributive justice. The judge issues a sentence, a just sentence, and the sovereign has the capacity to pardon, to stop that sentence from being executed. The second type of mercy relates to distributive justice. In the Christian tradition, it's called the corporal works of mercy in particular. There are also spiritual works of mercy, but it's enough to focus on the corporal works of mercy now. Feeding the hungry, giving water to the thirsty, clothing the naked, <coughs> sheltering the homeless, visiting the sick, visiting the imprisoned, and burying the dead. These are actions that in medieval Christian theology were considered <coughs> acts of mercy because they expressed the suffering that someone who was strong and living and who had something to eat and something to drink felt towards someone who lacked all of that. <coughs> they are called the corporal works of mercy. On the third level, thank you, one might also speak of social justice <coughs> and an aspect of mercy which I will call solidarity. On a group level, one could see, <coughs> please excuse me, one could distribute the benefits of the burden of the community in many different ways. One could say, to each according to his contribution to the community, to those who give more, to those who are more important, they get more of the benefits. The concept of solidarity, however, tempers that notion of justice by saying, we feel ourselves members of the same community, whether or not 
each and every one of us is contributing. We feel in solidarity with the suffering, with the old, with the blind, with the lame, not because they're contributing, but because we are all part of the same community. <coughs> a firm feeling or a firm commitment of being together, of being one with everyone in our community, no matter whether or not they're the most productive or the most um, affluent or the most successful. They are part of ours, so we take care of them. And I'm asking, and I'd like to hear your thoughts of this. In Christianity, we call this solidarity. I'd like to know what resonances this has with the notion in Islam of brotherhood, of being part of the Muslim community. Now, in Christian thought, I think these very human ways of interrelating with one another <coughs> and of interrelating mercy and justice has, is really a, a pale echo of how God relates within the Christian framework to, um, to questions of, of justice and mercy. The question of retributive justice and clemency obviously has resonances to the notion of last judgment and whether one goes to paradise or to damnation. That's very um, common. Distributive justice and mercy within the economy of Christian thought has to do with the concept of grace. One does not earn salvation. One does not earn God's favor. God gives it freely, graciously. And who gets grace is purely up to God. It's a question of mercy. It's not a question of justice. One cannot go to God, at least in traditional Christian theology, and say, you gave that person more grace than you gave me. That is unfair. That does not work. And social justice and solidarity is also an important concept in Christian theology and ethics. And it comes up with the notion of being incorporated into brotherhood and sisterhood with Jesus, who has a very special role, as you know, in Christianity, a very, very close relationship with God the Father. And that is seen sometimes as talked about as being incorporated into the body of Christ. And one reaches salvation by not by what one does oneself, but by being incorporated into this membership of a body of believers, which increasingly in Christian thought can extend to all people of goodwill, whether or not they're you know, explicitly Christian. There's a sense of the universality of the human uh, solidarity. So that's a little little sense of what justice and mercy might look like in the different aspects of it. What's the paradox of justice and mercy? Well, in philosophical thought, the paradox, and I think the challenge for believers of any tradition who hold on to justice and mercy is this. Philosophers have challenged us by saying, well, wait a minute. Either mercy is contradictory to justice, in, the which, in which case we've got one problem, or it's viewed as a very detailed specification of justice to particular cases, 
in which case we've got another problem. So let's just take an example of criminal sentencing in the human realm as an example. Suppose we've got two men, Adam and Bob, let's call them, A and B, who have committed the crime of armed robbery, a very serious offense. Suppose the sovereign pardons Adam, allowing him to go free, and yet permits the punishment assigned to Bob for armed robbery to be carried out. On one side of the paradox, you could argue that this is unjust. After all, Adam and Bob committed exactly the same crime. How could it be fair that Adam gets to go free and Bob must serve his sentence? One could also argue that it's unfair to the whole community to punish one person who violated its laws while letting the other just off the hook. So there's the fairness problem of the justice and mercy question. But there's another side of the paradox. Many contemporary philosophers of criminal law, I'm thinking in particular of a very fine book on pardons by a woman named Kathleen Dean Moore, have argued that rightly understood the pardon to power, uh, the power to pardon, has really outlived its usefulness in many cases. That it made sense, at least with the English uh, legal context, to um, have that power when all felonies, ranging from mild theft to murder, were punished in the same way and by death. But now that we've got finely graded criminal sentences, um, it doesn't make sense because, well, the punishment is much more likely to fit the crime. And the pardoning power was just meant to roughly deal with what we now deal with much more, with more precision. So as the legal system matured, it began to take into account aggravating and mitigating circumstances. Maybe Adam robbed the bank to get money to pay for dialysis for his dying daughter, say, whereas Bob robbed the bank to go on a gambling spree the judge should be able to take that into account. And since the judge can take that into account in sentencing, we don't need the pardoning power. Pardons, argued more, are not appropriately granted for the broad array of human reason, reasons human leaders granted pardons over the centuries, such as to ensure social peace or, <coughs> or to you know, uh, pacify a mem uh, an element of the community. So, for example, in the United States in the 1970s, there was tremendous con uh, uh, controversy when uh, President Ford pardoned President Nixon in order to ensure social peace. That was not a good reason for her. <coughs> the only reasons were about uh, making justice more precise. So how can we reconcile? How can we begin to think about the relationship of justice and mercy more productively? I have a hunch here, and it relates to everything I've learned from people like Professor Bervering on, Is on, on Islam and time, but also to just thinking about time myself. Um, if you think about the relationship of justice and mercy in the context of criminal sentencing, but also in the context of distributive justice, we tend to assume a point of time, right? A criminal commits a wrong act at a particular point in time. Retributive justice focuses on him at that act, laser-like. 
and addresses the punishment toward that one act. It has a hard time seeing the criminal's life and character and even repentance beyond that moment of that one crime. What mercy does, I think, in some way, is broaden the focus. It sees the human being as more than just a particular act at a particular point in time. And I could make the same argument about distributive justice, but that would, would take too long. Mercy, I like to think, as we, in human terms, moves beyond that one particular moment. It looks to repentance. It looks to reform. Pope Francis has talked about mercy as being patient, as God's patience with us. Patience is about time and extending time beyond that one moment. If mercy and justice are related through the medium of time and God is eternal, then it seems to me that God's eternity, God's ability to encompass not merely each and every act that we do, but our whole selves and our whole hearts to see fully is the way we reconcile justice and mercy. Um, at least that is my proposal. In his confessions, the great Christian St. Augustine said that eternity is God's possessing all of being at once. I like to think of mercy as God's possessing all of justice and love at once, particularly toward his creatures such as you and me. So we want to thank again Gerhard and Kathy uh, for their labors and efforts in enlightening us. You've been listening to a download from the NYRBW Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu/institute.